So you think we can try that here? And all God's people said? And all God's people said? All right. Simple brilliance. So let's go to the Lord, and then we'll dive into our passage for today. Oh, Lord, we love you, and we give you praise, and thank you for uh, this family we have together. And I pray, Lord, that you would be our teacher this morning. Uh, Get me out of the way and speak your words to your people, I pray, and convict hearts and encourage us and challenge us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, our passage for today, Philippians 4, 4 through 7, is a beloved passage for many, many Christians. And I would think that some of you here have these have this passage memorized and think about it quite often. So this morning, I'm not going to try to give you anything new. I'm going to do what both Paul and Peter said at different times, that it's good that I remind you of the things that you already know. Peter writes in his second letter, speaking of the qualities of the fruitful believer, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. And now we're kind of switching gears this week from Hebrews over to Philippians, and the end of Philippians nonetheless. So I think it's important to gain an understanding or get a refresher of Paul's relationship with the Philippians. As we read through his letter to them, we can't help but be taken by the great love and affection that he has for these people. He even goes so far as to call them his joy and his crown, his beloved, who he loves and longs for. He speaks of their great generosity to him during his ministry, noting even at times they were the only church supporting him. He tells them in chapter 1, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He loves these people. And we have a great record of his initial encounter with the Philippians in Acts chapter 16. So if you would, you might turn there, and we'll read about this account. Paul's on his second missionary journey. He's going from town to town, strengthening believers and spreading the gospel to those who have not heard yet. And what's interesting is that we read in this chapter that Paul is actually stopped by the Holy Spirit from going where he wants to go. Paul wants to go to a place called Bithynia, Luke tells us, but instead he's given a vision from a man in Macedonia calling out to him, saying, come here and help us. Now I have to think Paul's probably experiencing Proverbs 16:9 here. It says, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And I have to think Paul's probably on the edge of his seat, too, after this vision. Hey, Lord, what are you going to do here when we go? So Acts chapter 16, verse 11, and we'll read through verse 15. Now this is Luke speaking in first person, and he's with Paul on this journey. He says, So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. 
and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. How's that for a job description? Seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, I love how Luke describes Lydia as urging them to stay and eventually prevailing upon them. So she must have been quite insistent that they accept her warmth and her generosity. And I have to think that this is a likely starting point for Paul and his love and affection for these people that we just talked about right there in the household of Lydia. Also on this same trip, after meeting Lydia, Paul goes into town and gets himself into a bit of a pickle. He creates quite a stir. Now, I don't know if you remember the scene from the movie Hoosiers, where Gene Hackman walks into the, the town barbershop for the first time as the newly minted basketball coach. And it's definitely a uh, good old boy situation where these guys are looking at him saying, you ain't from around here, are you? I'm not sure you understand how things work around these parts. Well, Paul gets himself into a situation just like this in Philippi, where the people are left saying, you don't understand how things work around here, do you? And he doesn't seem to care either. He promptly enters town and shuts down a business. A slave girl is there making money for her owners through fortune-telling. Luke tells us she has a spirit of divination within her. And we're told that Paul actually becomes greatly annoyed with her, and he drives out the spirit. No spirit, no fortune-telling, no income for her owners. So this creates quite a stir, as you'd imagine. And long story short, Paul and Silas end up beaten and in prison over this whole thing. And now this is important for our text today because this experience and the way that Paul and Silas handle this is going to give them the clout and the footing, so to speak, to be able to say what they're going to say today in the verses we're looking at. And we'll look at their response here shortly. So as we zero in on chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, and even extending into 8 and 9, we see a set of commands that are sandwiched in between two sets of personal comments to the people. Prior to verse 4, Paul's encouraging two believers to settle a disagreement that they have with each other. After verse 9, he's thanking them for their generosity to him and his ministry. And in between those personal comments, he gives us these set of instructions to follow. As uh, Chapter 4 basically is one big long sign-off to this letter. It's almost like he threw these in there. He's like, don't forget to do these things. It's almost like a coach who's taken his or her team through the preseason. They've gone through all the plays and rehearsed all the scenarios they're going to have to deal with. They put in all the sweat and the reps, and now they're at the first game of the season. The coach is going to have to give them quick reminders. He can't go back over everything before the team takes the field. Play hard, have fun, have a blast, back each other up. I'll go rip their heads off. Okay, maybe not rip their heads off, although some of you I know are pretty competitive in here, are probably on board with that. So, so Paul's signing off. 
And he's encouraging the people to remember to do these things. We're going to see a central theme for this passage is rejoice, the Lord is at hand. Rejoice, the Lord is at hand. So let's read these verses. And I thought we might do something a little bit different this morning, just for fun. I've seen this done other places. Um, I'll read verses 4 and 6, and you as a group would read verses 5 and 7. You think we can handle that? Think you can stay together? All right. Well, let's give it a go. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Very good. And God's people said? Amen. And God's people said? All right. All right. There we go. All right, verse 4. Let's dig in. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. We see that this statement is really power-packed, so we're going to spend some time on this this morning. What does it mean to rejoice? What does that word mean? What does it mean to rejoice specifically in the Lord, and how in the world do we do it always? First, let's look at this word rejoice. Now, I'm not going to geek out on you with Greek this morning, and I'm by no means a Greek scholar, but this word is interesting for rejoice. In the Greek, it's kairo. It specifically means to rejoice or to be glad. Now this word, kairo, shares a sister or cognate word, charis, which sounds familiar to a lot of you probably. That's where our daughter's name came from. But charis is the Greek word for grace. And these two are kind of joined together a little bit because they share a root word. So kairo, rejoice, charis, grace. So there's a sense where this rejoicing is kind of seasoned, so to speak, with the idea or acknowledgement of grace. So I'm going to submit to you here that rejoicing, just a simple definition, delighting in God and his grace. Delighting in God and his grace. We begin to understand that rejoicing goes much deeper than temporal emotions or momentary feelings. Paul says to rejoice twice in the same statement. And he says to rejoice always without any exceptions or any caveats to that. We are to rejoice always. And to underscore this point, let's look back at the imprisonment that Paul and Silas endured that we just mentioned. This is going to undergird what he says to them. Now, do you remember in this story, any of you, what Paul and Silas were found doing? In the prison at midnight, singing hymns and praying to the Lord, yes. And loud enough that Luke tells us the other prisoners were listening to them. So when Paul says, as he's been in prison rejoicing, so when Paul says without exception to rejoice always, he packs with it the punch an example of having done it in their midst already. And to further underscore this, that we should rejoice always, we look to 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. And this might be one you want to turn to. This passage is amazing. And if you're looking for um, a passage to memorize, maybe, I might suggest this one. This is awesome stuff. 
And pay attention especially to the first few sentences here, because in the middle of this passage, Paul's going to say, in this you rejoice, looking back to what he's already said. So here we go, verse 3. This is 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And we do, don't we? Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If I remember right, I don't know if any of you remember, I think Kurt prayed that at the end of the service last, or this last week, that we'd have joy that is filled with glory. Now, I reference this verse also, this passage, because we see that even if we are grieved by various trials and difficult circumstances, we are to rejoice despite. We also see here that our rejoicing is qualified by this very important phrase, in the Lord, in verse 4. Now, what does it specifically mean to rejoice? In the Lord. Now, I have to think that for all of eternity... We're going to be finding reasons to rejoice in the Lord. But for today, I'm going to give you three things to take with you. We rejoice, one, in the finished work of Christ, in his finished work. In Hebrews chapter 10, which we were just in not long ago, 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Remember J.D. talking about how important that is, that Jesus sat down after he had sacrificed for us, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we rejoice in his finished work. Secondly, we rejoice in his constant presence. This is the at hand spoken of in verse 5 that's so pivotal to this passage. Some commentators believe that the at hand spoken of here by Paul is the Lord's actual return. And some commentators think that this is his presence with us now that he's speaking of. In my humble opinion, for you youngsters, I am H.O., in my humble opinion. I think that he's talking about our relationship with the Lord right now because, he, as we'll see, he goes into talking about prayer and our relationship with the Lord. But the wonderful thing is that both of these things are true. In Revelation, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming soon. 
And he also said in Matthew 28 to his disciples when he commissions them, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. So both are true. Win-win for us, right? In Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, we read, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Now Jesus says, I'll be with you always. Paul tells us, we as believers have been given the promised Holy Spirit. We're never alone as believers. He's always with us. The Lord indeed is at hand. And speaking of that inheritance we just read about, thirdly, we rejoice in the hope he secured for us. Alistair Begg calls this the not yet aspect of our faith, the fulfillment of finally being with Christ forever. Let me think about that, finally being with Christ forever. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Does anybody have that hope here this morning? Our rejoicing is not about the what that's going on around us. Our rejoicing is about the who is with us. It's not about the what going on around us. It's about the who that's with us. That's a capital W, the Lord Jesus Christ, his spirit within us. So as we move into verses 6 and 7, we build onto this heart of rejoicing, a heart of trustful dependence on the Lord. We read in 6 and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now Paul says not to be anxious about what here? Anything. He says don't be anxious about anything. Again, a direct statement with no exceptions. He echoes what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Exactly. And you might turn there, or you can listen along or turn there if you want. This is Matthew chapter 6, 25 through 33. And if you're listening, just count the number of times Jesus mentions anxiety here and what he has to say about it. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, 
O you of little faith. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, if you're accounting, there were four mentions of anxiety there. And every time Jesus said either, don't be anxious, or why are you anxious? So clearly, he's not big on it for us. The life of the believer should not be marked by anxiety, but on a prayerful dependence on the Lord. Paul's telling the Philippians not to run from their anxiety, but to address it, acknowledge it, and bring it to the one who can do something about it. We don't bury our anxiety as believers. We bring it to the Lord. A great picture of this is in 1 Peter chapter 5, 6 through 7. Verse 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Now that last phrase is enough for me, because he cares for you. But we are to cast our anxieties on him. Now what's interesting is this word for casting is also used in Luke chapter 19, verse 35, when the disciples throw their cloaks onto the colt that Jesus was getting to ride into town. So as we pray, we cast our anxieties onto the Lord just as the disciples cast their cloaks onto the colt and they let go of them. So it's a throwing upon, a letting go, giving away. Now, I work in the lawn care and landscaping business, so I drive with a trailer much of the time that has a big load on it, either mowers or mulch or whatever it might be. However, there are times when a job only calls for, uh, you know, a small amount of tools and maybe just a lot of uh, elbow grease, and I can unhitch from the trailer. It's always much less stressful to drive without the trailer. It's less dangerous. There's less expensive equipment at risk. It saves on gas. Maneuvering places is easier. It's always just much less stressful. Now, much like unhitching from that trailer, we need to unhitch from our anxieties. And Paul's commanding us to. Another picture of this is I remember when I played baseball, we, uh, we poked fun at the guys who could hit the ball well, but were slow as molasses. So these guys might hit the ball out to the fence, but then you see them around in first base trying to get a double, and it's like, are you going to get there? Like, it looks like they've got an invisible trailer hitched to them. And so we'd be in there yelling, and I know some of you have used this phrase too. We'd say, unhitch the trailer, come on, get moving. But we need to unhitch from our anxieties. Too many of us immediately hitch up to the anxiety trailer really first thing in the morning sometimes. We bog ourselves down with everything that we need to do during the day. And slowly but surely, we've got the hitch ball here and we're backing the truck up without even realizing it, worrying about all the different things that we've got to do. And suddenly we're on it trying to carry it all. When the Lord has commanded us to unhitch from it and let him carry it. Now, it's important to distinguish between um, an unhealthy anxiety and a healthy attentiveness to something that needs done 
And I think that transition and that wisdom comes from prayer, which Paul moves into here in verse 6. Paul tells us to pray about everything. Again, no exceptions. You see, Paul's really getting some things across here. He's making definite statements without exception. Pray about everything. The Lord's inviting us to walk with him on a minute-by-minute basis. Remember verse 5, the Lord is at hand and always with us. You'll see that Paul specifically uses different terms here in regard to this. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. Okay, so what are those real quickly? Prayer, just simply a conversation or exchange with the Lord. Supplications, the one I always forget. This is just a heartfelt petition or entreaty to the Lord, something that you need or want and you're asking him for. And thanksgiving, which we all know what that is, a heartfelt acknowledgement of blessing. We always come to the Lord with thanksgiving. And, and why wouldn't we? You know, every time we come to the Lord, we have many things to thank him for. His son, his spirit, salvation, his patience with us. I thank the Lord all the time, seems like at this point in my life, for patience with me. I don't know if any of you identify with that. So Paul here graciously gives us general guidelines on how to communicate with the Lord on an all-day basis. Give thanks. Acknowledge what he's done. Walk in dialogue with the Lord. Listen for his lead. Offer up requests. Now, one of the great truths of Scripture regarding prayer is one of my favorites. I love this. The Holy Spirit helps us as we pray. Many of us feel like we don't know how to pray or don't think we're saying the right things. And that's okay, because Paul actually confirms that in Romans 8, that we don't know what to pray for as we ought to. Romans chapter 8, 26 and 27. Very comforting. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So if you don't feel like you know what to pray for, that's okay, Paul's acknowledging that here. He's giving us a guideline on how to do this. And then we have the promise that the Holy Spirit's helping us. Another aspect of praying about everything is realizing that there's nothing too big or too small to pray about. I remember Glenn McFarland speaking about this one time. He was calling attention to the silliness of seeing things as big or small in God's eyes in the scope of his power. He always said, folks, I don't know if you remember that. He said, folks, it's all small stuff to God in the scope of his power. I always remembered that. And in a sense, if we don't offer up to the Lord what we consider the small things that actually are causing us anxiety and we just don't want to acknowledge it, then what we're saying is that, God, you're not big enough to handle the big things you're already dealing with and my little things on top of that. And we know that that's not true. And ridiculous, frankly. Paul tells us to pray about everything. Elsewhere, he says to pray without ceasing. We're not to be anxious about anything, either the big stuff or the small stuff. The Lord is at hand, remember. Now, as we rejoice, 
as we live in prayerful dependence on the Lord, in verse 7, we have a promise of peace that goes beyond our understanding, that guards our hearts. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that he, Christ, himself is our peace. The closer we are to the Lord, naturally the more of his peace we're going to gain. He is the Prince of Peace, remember. So walk in him and take part in his peace moment by moment. Now to close here, I, I asked permission to tell this story because this, is a, this was a pretty sensitive conversation I had with a friend of mine, but I thought it was such a great example of rejoicing in the midst of very difficult circumstances. Many of you know Isaac Moody and that he lost his wife earlier this year. And I had a chance to talk with him one-on-one uh, -on -one, uh, before Karen went to meet the Lord, a couple weeks before that. And the family already knew that it was coming unless the Lord intervened. And I asked him, I said, what, so what are you hanging on to right now? Like, what are you... You know, what's the Lord saying to you? Is there a verse? Is there a song? You know, somebody said something to you? And he didn't hesitate. He just didn't hesitate. I was so blown away by this. He said, Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. When they got the news that Karen was going to be uh, probably meeting the Lord soon, he gathered his kids together and went over that verse with them and said, Yes, great loss is probably on the horizon, and it's going to be very hard, very, very hard, and we'll have bad moments, but we're going to rejoice because of what Christ has done, and because of him, we're going to be with her for all of eternity with Christ, and so we're going to rejoice, and I was blown away by that, and I'll close with that today, so let's pray. Oh, Father, again, we love you and thank you that we can be together as your people and rejoice together and remind each other of the truths you've given us in Scripture and your word. And I pray that you'd help us, lead us as we go from here to rejoice no matter what's going on. And I pray that you'd give us the boldness to go and speak your word fearlessly, lovingly, and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.